Good morning. We're in a series essentially on relationships, what it means to be right with God and right with others. And we're kind of framing it at the core by calling it grace and forgiveness. And I read this last week, I'll read it again this week. But I can't, it kind of came to realize that my greatest problems with people are when I expect them to be who they're not and to do what they can't. My greatest problems with people in relationships are when I expect them to be who they're not and do what they can't. What that essentially means is when people are not deserving, I have a hard time accepting them, right? It, it shows that grace is a difficult thing. That accepting people, giving them grace when they don't deserve it, is something we don't come by naturally. And so, kind of what we wanted to look at in this series is just simply... How is God speaking into our relationships? How is God speaking into our families and our communities and our churches with grace so that we can have healthy relationships? Because at the core of this universe is, uh, is the grand design that God and God's creation would be reconciled and united. So the unity, the health of relationships is a huge thing. So we have a tough time with grace. We have a a tough time accepting the undeserving. And because of that, relationships, community, church, family, marriages are hard. So what I want to do is just have you turn to Matthew 18. We're going to kind of spend the morning walking through this passage. It's a famous passage for a couple different reasons. Probably uh, the, the chunk we're reading first is the biggest one. But Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15... Is a section of scripture that, that predominantly, at least in my experience, is used by churches for excommunication purposes. Excommunication purposes. Um, a good excommunication is always fun. We haven't had one in a while. We should have one in a week or two. <laughs> Don't miss this Sunday. It's excommunication Sunday. Uh, we're going to take communion after. <laughs> um, but that's predominantly what this passage in my experience, has been used for. It's not at all what it's about. Let's read Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. It says this, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. It's, the whole cast of this little chunk of Scripture is not about being punitive, punishing people for what they do wrong, or kicking them out. It's all aimed at reconciliation. Is it going to work? Been told by Kip to write bigger, by my wife to write neater, by the rest of the staff to get a new personality. The, uh, Reconciliation. So the whole cast of this, right, is reconciliation. If you go to your brother, just the two of you, after you told your whole small group and your sister and her friends and you had everybody pray with you for this, then you go to that. No, just you and this person. Because the hope is that it's all going to come back together. It's healthy. 
right? So the whole cast of this chunk isn't excommunication. It's, it's reconciliation. It says, go to this. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he, if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Which means gossip about him, judge him, and slander him, right? That's the funny thing about when somebody leaves a fellowship or, or there's a, a very difficult situation and, and they're put in some sense a little bit outside the fellowship. It's almost like it's, it's open season. Have you ever experienced that? The irony, the great irony of this is a pagan and a tax collector are the people that Jesus loved. We're supposed to love our enemies. So we're not supposed to, we're supposed to just say the character of this person is such that after all these repeated attempts, the mature thing to do is to create some separation and some distance with the desire and the hope and the love that they would come back and be reconciled someday. But to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector has to do with proximity and separating yourself out. It doesn't have to do with like it's open season. Oh, that's that person. Let's not go in the grocery store until they leave. You know, they're untouchable, right? We, uh, by the way, side story, but I never get to tell it. Um, we had these squishy balls once, these yellow squishy balls, because I was sitting in my office one day and I, all of a sudden I, was, I had this stress ball. And I, I thought, wouldn't it be funny if we had stress balls that said, love your enemies on them? Get it? Like stress ball, love your enemies. I just thought it was funny. You guys didn't think it was funny. So we ordered these squishy balls that said, love your enemies on them, these yellow ones. And I thought it was really funny. And, and, and then we had all these squishy balls. And we didn't know what to do with them. And, and so we, we used to put them in the welcome bags, kind of as a whatever. So there was this Monday when I came to the office and there was this irate parent who had been irate at the kids' ministry. And so I was like, oh no, what did we do? What did we do wrong? And so, hey, Brandon, you need to call this guy. <laughs> Brandon, like, so Brandon calls the guy and then he comes to me after. He's like, man, don't worry about what we did wrong. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, look, we don't want those people to come back. They, they just got issues. Oh, what are you talking about? Well, they had issues with the kids' ministry or whatever, and, and the guy's talking on the phone and then talks to, says to Brandon, he goes, and then we got this welcome bag, and we go get in the car, and my son's going through the welcome bag, and he pulls out this squishy ball, and it says, love your enemies, and that's not even in the Bible. <laughs> you know, and, like, and the guy's just like, full, like, you guys aren't biblical. Kids' ministry wasn't biblical. You got a squishy ball. You know, you're not supposed to love your enemies. And you got to love your enemies on there. And Brandon's just like, yeah, okay, you know. <laughs> like, I hope you know it says love your enemies in the Bible. If you're new today, it says love your enemies in the Bible, okay. Um, where were we? Um, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Oh, uh, Matthew 18. So... Pagan and a tax collector. So even if somebody's not listening, it, it's, not, it's not like open season. And Jesus says, listen, let me encourage you, because relationships are messy, things are difficult. 
And I'll tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. That's the famous verse, right? You've heard that before. Where two or three gather, uh, I am there in their midst. Have you heard that passage? Here's the interesting that's going on. I, I want you to kind of, we're going to do two main ones. I'll just give you the first one here. Relational struggles. Why is this passage in Scripture? I, I told you last week that a broken world includes messed up people, and messed up people do messed up things, right? This passage is here because we're going to have to fix broken relationships. We're gonna, it's just a part of life. It's a natural part of life. We're going to have to fix it, and it's not going to be easy. It's going to be messy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be draining, Okay, and we have to be long-suffering. And so here's Jesus, and Jesus is saying, listen, when you, when you wade into that, it's not one person's word against another. That would be chaos, wouldn't it? If we took anyone's word against anybody else, like, that would be chaos. It's not supposed to work like that. If there's an issue in other mature people, not, not their best friend and their other best friend, okay, but other mature people get eyeballs on that thing and have a perspective and go, yeah, there's something funky going on here. When it's difficult and it's confirmed by other witnesses, like in a courtroom, you wouldn't just take one person, put them on the stand. Yeah, he did it. Ah, death penalty. <laughs> it's like, we don't even need the verdict. Just take them now. Like, we would never do that, right? So Jesus is saying, look, these are difficult things. And by two or three witnesses, I'll be there with you in the midst of it helping you out. He had just quoted earlier, Jesus had, that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He takes that straight out of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God calls the people to himself and then he basically gives them a law of how to stay in the right relationship with each other. And, and in this law, it talks about witnesses, literally witness, witnesses that you'd put on a stand. Deuteronomy 1915, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus knew his Bible. And when he was kind of pushing his disciples forward to these relationships and these kind of little communities they were going to have, the church, he's saying, man, it's going to be messy. And when people offend you or when they wrong you go to them directly and if that doesn't work bring a mature person or two with you and Jesus is saying that's the way it has to go so it should go because it needs two or three witnesses and then he comes back by the way Paul picks us up in 1 Timothy 5 19 and says don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses he's saying the leaders of the church especially if you're going to accuse them of something man, there better be some other mature people or you're going to do a great harm to the church as the gossip begins to spread. So Jesus is saying this whole thing, and he gets to the end, and he says, for two or three are come together in my name, there I am with them. Whenever God in the Old Testament, Moses, Joshua, whenever he commissions somebody to a difficult task, 
he always leaves off with this promise of his presence going with him. Be strong and courageous, Joshua, for I will go with you. Jesus comes to the end of Matthew and he grabs his disciples and he's like, man, I'm going to send you to go be persecuted to the ends of the earth to proclaim my name. You're going you're to go make disciples, but, but fear not because I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We willy-nilly kind of grab these promises of, of the presence of God when, in fact, they're usually given as an assurance on the back end of a difficult command. Messed up people do messed up things. And if you're trying to bring harmony and lead the family of God, you're going to run into difficult situations. And you're going to have to wade into that. And you're going to have to to fix it and help it. But guess what? I'll be with you if you handle it maturely. This passage uh, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there also, usually gets used the way I typically hear it. uh, Are people throwing it at me as being something against the institutional church. By the way, institution, we all have issues with the institutional church because churches aren't perfect. People that lead churches aren't perfect. You can find faults. And we all have problems with the institutional church. And then we trip on the word institution. We're like, man, what is the church? Walmart, what's going on? Why do we have a budget? Why do we have these things? The family is an institution. The institution of marriage Whenever you get a group of people together, flag football begins to organize itself into positions and and structures and and who's in charge and who's calling the play. Anything where you put people together of any kind of size begins to institutionalize itself. You take a home church long enough and you begin to have questions about tithing or the money coming in, you're going to begin to create policies. Or a real messy guy comes in that has... uh, a sex offense on his record. All of a sudden, this home church of 30 or 40 is going to start making some difficult decisions on how to create policy to deal with the situation. Everything begins to institutionalize itself at some point. Okay? This verse, I usually hear it used against the institutional church where two or three are gathered together. There's Jesus. That's a church. I'm going to do church on the golf course. I'm going to do church here I'm going to, because that's what really church is about. It's organic. It's, it's, it's whatever. Well, frankly, if I'm underneath a pine tree, Jesus is with me. I can be by myself. I can be in the middle of the Sahara Desert. If I've been redeemed by Christ and, and he's, he's sent the Holy Spirit into my life, God is with me. I can do church by that definition, just me, myself, and God. Okay? The church was meant to be a place where gifts were brought together, where children are raised up and they see different generations. I used to pastor a college group down at Biola, and a bunch of Biola students would be like, yeah, that's my church. Biola's my church. I'm like, great! I want to join your church. And I just led a guy to the Lord down at Huntington Beach. He's 45, doesn't have a job. Uh, I want to bring him to your church too. And uh, there's, a, there's a five-year-old kid down the street, um, broken home situation. I want to I bring that five-year-old to your church, too. Uh, well, you can't. What do you mean I can't? Well, I mean, they can't enroll at Biola. Five-year-old's old, not old enough. I mean, this guy doesn't qualify, you know. Like, what do you mean I can't bring people to your church? You know, I, I'm trying to push on them that church is meant to be this 
organic community with different generations and different gifts, not a bunch of left arms because you found all the people that look like you, not just a bunch of ages because you don't like old people and young people annoy you, but, but just this, this mix of gifts and types of people so that we reflect someday what the kingdom's going to look like in heaven. And we take all these gifts and we pull it together and we're able to accomplish ends that God created the church for. I love home churches. Problem with home churches is if they're healthy, they sometimes grow out of your home. I know, because Antioch started in a home. But you know what? You give up when you lose that intimacy. You know what you gain? Antioch is making a difference around the world. We're not like changing the whole world, but there are places in the world where this church is having an impact. There are churches calling Brandon every single week asking him about our intern ministry. Crazy. Next week, we have... uh, a cool thing between services, we're going to do an interview of Don Golden, Senior Vice President at World Relief, and one of our former interns, Marianne Bach, who went with them to Turkana, Kenya, which is part of this whole drought in the Horn of Africa, and Dr. Randy Jacobs, uh, one, of, one of the people in our church here that works at BMC, um, but just gave up a month to go be in Somalia uh, helping people in the midst of this drought with Medical Teams International. We're going we're gonna to interview them on stage here. There are people in this church, and you, and I mean people next to you and whatever, that are making an impact in this world because we're able to leverage a lot of gifts or resources together or networking, synergy, one plus one equals three, and we're making an impact. It's a crazy thing, okay? And this sermon on grace and forgiveness just turned into a sermon on why I believe in the local church. That's okay. I believe in the local church. But, but Jesus is not saying, I got a better idea. Let's get rid of institutional religion. There's a lot of garbage. Most of the people that came to Antioch in our first two years were victims of spiritual abuse. That's why none of them served, none of them tithed. They just came here because they were beat up. <laughs> there's a lot of problems, but there's also a lot of great things. But this passage isn't about a new vision of church which is me and my buddies. It's about Jesus saying, I call you to tough things, to reconcile with people that you're just frustrated with or you're angry at or you don't even like, where it's messy and you're going to wade into that in a healthy way, looking for reconciliation and unity. And you know what? I'm going to be with you. I'm I'm going there with you. So let's talk just a little bit more about what what it means when we kind of walk into relational struggles. Relational struggles are like the everyday kind of things where forgiveness and grace comes in. So I want to talk just a little bit about this. Uh, I started a new phrase with my, with my kids. It's called erase the fight. So they fight, right? And just, I'll give you an example, recent one. So nobody likes to sit in the back seat of our car. We have three seats. Back seat, it's like you're not even a part of the family, you know. It's way in the back. It's not, so no one wants to be back there. So my two oldest, nine and, uh, eight and nine, they're fighting. But see, I can work with them at a different level than I can the other kids. And so they're fighting over it. I'm like, there's a what? They're like, the, the fight. You guys are doing what? We're, we're fighting. Really? What do you think my biggest problem is with everything I just heard? The word fight. You know, yeah. So 
how do you guys erase the fight? How do you erase the fight? And then I'll, they'll usually pause because when you don't want to answer, the next best thing is just say nothing, you know? <laughs> like, so how do you erase the fight? What is the one thing you could do that would make everything right again? What, what's the one thing you could do that would erase the fight? Go sit in the back seat with my sister. Okay. Are you willing to do that one thing that you could do that would erase the fight? Well, not really, right? And so here's where I bring in the phrase we use at Antioch. The, this phrase, give your life away, it's not just a cheesy little slogan. So I'll say to one of my daughters, you know that phrase? It's on the t-shirt you have from Antioch. Give your life away, Dad? Yeah. What do you think it means? And then I'll coach my daughter. It means that what you do right now is you do something you don't want to do. You serve your sister. And in doing so, instead of choosing pleasure that comes from winning and getting your way, you're choosing to find your pleasure in, in having a healthy relationship and doing what you know is right. Are you willing to, to give your life away? Are you willing to serve your sister and choose to find your joy in what's right? Yeah, Dad, I am. You know, gets up, goes to the back, you know, the car. They start laughing and giggling and playing, and I'm, you know, and I'm like, are you guys laugh fighting? You know, that's my way of teasing. So they're laughing at each other. I'm like, are you guys still fighting? Are you laugh fighting? Because when you affirm them when they first fix it and make it a big joke, it just becomes that much easier the next time, right? So erase the fight. What can you do in relational struggles to erase the fight? And here's what you can do. If you, if you only hear one thing, please hear me on this because our, our culture, my generation, we're horrible at this. No disagreement, very few disagreements are 100% zero. Very few disagreements, the other person is 100% wrong and you've done everything right. You responded right. Your body language was right. You didn't tell anyone. You didn't, you know what I'm saying? Very few situations are 100% zero. Now, they could be ultimately the real reason there's a problem. You get what I'm saying? But there's usually something you could have done better. So here's how you fix a relationship and erase a fight. You walk in and you just, you just go to the brother or sister and you say, listen, hey, uh, I've been thinking. I could have handled that different." You caught me off guard. I, you really hit a button with me. I, I didn't realize I had such a big button. Or, you know what? I'm realizing I, I could have maybe heard you wrong. I mean, I heard you saying this, but I'm beginning to realize that might not have been what you meant. Or, you know what? After you did that, like I could have, I could have done this, but instead, I think I really made it worse. I, I'm sorry. Sorry. Would you forgive me? See, if you go into a fight and you, you, you explain to somebody why they're wrong, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to turn right around and explain to you why you're wrong. Right? Because isn't that what a fight is? If you go into a fight and you say, listen, I'm sorry. I could have handled that different. What do you think they're going to say? 
you know what? I'm sorry too. I, uh, it's, it's been a bad week. I just got some bad news. Or I just, you know, ah, I didn't mean it to come out that way. Or you know what, I realized after talking to that other person that I probably shouldn't have done that. When you come in and you humble yourself, other people then turn around and they don't have to defend themselves and, and they're going to turn right around and humble themselves. So the first thing when we're going to try and fix relational issues is realize there's two sides to every story and that you go in in a position of humility and grace. You go in in a position of humility and grace. My wife brought into our marriage a, a saying that if all were known, all would be forgiven. If all were known, all would be forgiven. What she, what she meant by that was, by the way, um, my wife is better than your wife. She's the greatest person I know. Um, she's pretty remarkable. And I'm, I'm, I don't mean to brag. I mean to brag so that you think I love my wife. I don't mean to brag to offend. Does that make sense? I should have just said it the right way the first time. The, my wife brings in this statement, if all were known. Boy, I really did say that wrong, didn't I? I don't mean to. I like my wife, okay? <laughs> you should get to know my wife. If you're looking for a female mentor and you're younger than my wife, you should, you should pursue my wife. If all were known, all would be forgiven. What she simply meant by that was if you really understood the context of that person, that daddy didn't love that person, or that they were abused by the uncle that nobody thought was as messed up as he was, or that they just got news about an illness that they really haven't shared with anybody yet, or if they got chewed out at work, or if they, if you really knew the context of their life and their personality and their strengths and their weaknesses, it might not excuse the offense, but it makes it understandable. You see, we, we judge ourselves by our strengths, our best day. Do you guys know that I, I played nine holes of golf once, two over par? Once. And I can still picture every shot. If you talk to me about golf, I'm reliving when I was playing at Clemson at age 22. We, we judge ourselves by our greatest day, our highlight reel, our press clippings, our greatest strengths, and we judge others by the things that we would never do or the things that we would never get that wrong. We, we tend to see their weaknesses, right? So you get this really weird, we overinflate ourselves and underestimate others and and my wife's saying, if all were known, all would be forgiven. If you could really stand in their shoes, you'd kind of get why they do the things they do. And if you can kind of get it, it takes the sting out of it, and it's a little bit easier to have grace for them. And so if all were really known, if you really knew all that, all would be forgiven. There would be no undeserved thing that you couldn't somehow erase. So nothing's ever 100% zero. If all were known, all would be forgiven. We're not supposed to just take one side of a story. It says in the book of Proverbs, the first to present his case always seems right until another comes along. And we know that, don't we? So instead of going to everybody else in your network when there's a problem, you go to that person first, says Jesus. With the goal of reconciling, not of winning. With the goal of asking for forgiveness or being humble enough to go in in that posture so that you can also then forgive them and they can, they can ask forgiveness from you as well. 
So here's two questions I want to ask you this morning when it comes to relational struggles. By the way, here's something I've learned in my adult life. When you, when you look at a person and you really want to know their maturity or their character, the best way to know it is when you get sideways with them, how they handle it. You know, you can, somebody can be really funny and a great guy, but have horrible character, and the minute things get sideways, they're they're a devil. Does that make sense? Like, humor does not equate to character. And the best way to discern character is when you get sideways with someone. I told Antioch when we first got started, I said, I'd never want a guy on my altar board unless I've been sideways with him first. Because I could have been friends for two years of hanging out and palling around, but if I've never been sideways with a guy, then I don't really know his character. It's the same thing with small group leaders at Antioch. They sign a covenant. It's kind of one of those silly little things, but we actually mean it. It's like a leader covenant for a small group. And it says how they're going to handle gossip. Because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, right? You've been in a small group before. It's like the best place to gossip in the world. And half the time you can do it in, in the prayer time and not get accused of gossiping. So we, we know it's going to be there, and we just say to our leaders, like, hey, here's your commitment, that you're not going to be a party to allowing gossip to feed on itself. You're going to point people back to leadership or to whoever offended them, or you yourself are going to make sure you bring it back. You're going to be an agent of health when you're leading people from this church. You're not going to be a person that allows dysfunction to continue. So not only do, it doesn't matter with like elders, it matters with like small group leaders and stuff like that too. But so character is shown when you get sideways, which is a big deal to me. So here's the, here's the question. Who do you need to say you're sorry to this morning that you don't have to, but that you could? Who is wrong to you, but you could go find him or her Because there's something that you could say sorry for. Something in your response, something in your feelings or your thoughts, something that'll get the conversation going and allow it to work itself out to health. Who do you need to say you're sorry to this morning that you don't have to, but that you could? What can you take the blame for, even if you're not the main problem? What would it take to erase the fight with your boss, your spouse, your kid? What would it take to erase the fight and for the sake of harmony and unity and as an offering to God, are you willing to do that one thing? Are you willing to give your life away? Because the kingdom of God is greater than your pride or your feelings. Because Jesus will meet you there. You know what's amazing? In some ways, we're never closer to God than when we're forgiving somebody or asking forgiveness from somebody. Think about it. When you're in the position of humility to where you're extending grace or asking for forgiveness, in that moment, we're probably the closest to God as we ever get. God says, you know, the humble, the truly humble, 
I lift them up and I restore them and I pull them up. I reach down. There's nothing in them. It's everything in me and our, our relationships. I, but the proud, I lay them low. There's nothing there I can work with. I lay them low. And when we are asking forgiveness or extending forgiveness, we're never more in this position of humility where God is like, man, I'm, I'm there with you. One of you ever forgiven somebody and God would say to you, that was wrong. No, stupid. Why'd you do that? One of you ever asked for forgiveness, no matter how right you were, even if you were making something up just to get the, the conversation going. And I've done that before. I can't even find something I halfway did wrong. So I'll make something up, you know? I, I, maybe not. But, but even, like, no matter what little thing you're asking forgiveness for, when... Have you ever asked forgiveness and God would be like, yeah, that's really not what I want you to do right now? We're never closer to God than when we're forgiving somebody or asking forgiveness. And, uh, and so the question really is, for the sake of God and the kingdom and unity, are you willing to give your life away and begin the conversation with somebody? taking into account that, you know what, if all were known, all were, would be forgiven. If I was in that person's shoes, there's a good chance I might have done the same thing. If I was a German during World War II, I might have looked the other way. I don't know. But things are understandable even if they're not excusable so I can have grace. All right, let's continue on. C.S. Lewis said this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And we can always erase the fight. So Matthew 18, let's turn to the second part of it. Interesting thing is, is Jesus is talking about messy relationships and how to restore messy relationships and how to forgive. And so Peter asked the logical question, how far do I go down this road? Like, how much patience do I really have with somebody? How much grace do I really show them? Like, when, when does this end? When do I finally say enough is enough? And so he says to Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, not seven times, but 77 times. Peter, the goal of your maturity is not maturity the goal of your maturity is reconciliation. So you just put your mat maturity on the, the crockpot level and you let it cook. And you don't stop. Because your maturity, your health, your willingness to work it out is supposed to just keep on going because the goal is reconciliation. So he tells him this story. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. This is chapter 18 of Matthew, now in verse 24. And as this king began, to sell, uh, began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. An overwhelming amount of money. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, that all of them be sold to repay the debt. We're going to take these people, sell their very lives to exchange it for money so that the debt can be paid. It's a significant debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. He said, be patient with me. And I will pay back everything in due time. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, forgave the debt, and let him go. 
But when that servant went out, he found one of the fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees, and he he begged him, and he said this, the same phrase, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But the man refused. Instead, he went off, and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servant dudes saw this, they were greatly distressed. They saw something that ought not be, you know what I'm saying? Bothered in their gut, disturbed. And so they went and they told their master, the king, everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in and he said, You wicked servant. I canceled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Jesus now says this. He says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Turn over to Matthew 6, if you would. Matthew chapter 6, it's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very famous passage. If you've grown up in the church, you've, you've probably recited it. It's the Lord's Prayer. He's teaching his disciples how to pray, and so it's Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. He says this, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, set apart, be your name. You are other than us. You are different from us. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, Jesus now now teaches, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins." What's interesting in this passage to me is I think anyone who's heard it, recited it, come across it, knows that in the Lord's Prayer it talks about forgiveness. But the way Jesus casts it is really interesting. Listen to how he casts it. He says, this is how we should pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then it goes on and says, If you forgive men when they sin against you, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Isn't that a bit intriguing? We tend to always throw it on God. I mean, it's an easy thing to do. And and we take zero responsibility for for most things in life. When it comes to Bible, we we always put God first. And and there's a reason for that, because with most things, we're supposed to put God first. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. But there's a sense in which we're responsible. And God is saying, listen, when I make you right with me, I don't just make you right with me, I make you right so that you can be right with other people too. And if you get that, there's an expectation that you're going to be forgiven other people what what they do against you. And if you do this, then don't worry. 
I got you and I'll forgive you too. But if you're not forgiving other people, I'm not going to take that very long. And instead of forgiving you, as a good parent will do, what am I going to begin to do? Smack you around the room. I'm just kidding. I got to discipline you. You know, the school teacher, the third grade teacher that has the kid that's beating up on all the other kids, can't go up to that kid and say, you know, Johnny, I love you. You're so amazing. You treat people so well. Keep doing what you're doing. You can't affirm when somebody's not doing what is right. And if we're not doing right by our fellow man like we're supposed to, if we're choking them, then God's like, I, I, I can't affirm that. I eventually have to discipline you to try and bring you back to understanding how this thing works, that it's a two-way street, that it's about unity, that my grace isn't amazing grace and you just take it in. Like I always thought we, we treat grace wrong. And we sing Amazing Grace, and we get excited about Amazing Grace, but it's all like consumeristic America. Like, isn't this great? There's more, and it never stops. It just keeps coming. It's great. And the whole time, God has is, is got a different perspective. He's like, man, you were burning, and my grace was coming to you like water, and that's burning. And don't you realize you're now in a fireman's brigade, and it's, the grace that's coming your way is supposed to keep on going? And we're over here like Americans going, this is great. God loves me. You know, and, and yes, God loves you. But, but God also loves other people too. And there's, you see what I'm saying? And so when, when we forgive other people and there's even an ounce of it, a shred of it, God's going to clap and forgive us and say, you, you're getting it. You and me, let's, let's walk down this road. Let's do this together. I can help you. You're, you're beginning to get it, and so it goes. But there's this real sense in which we've got to get forgiveness. There's got to be something in there that God begins to, you know, take that little spark and fan it into flames. And we begin to realize, oh, wow, grace, grace, it's grace, this is cool. Now that I, I'm forgiven, I don't have to prove myself to anybody. Now that I'm, I'm made whole with God and right with God, I don't have to defend myself. Now that, that God's not taking offense at my mistakes, I can look at this guy and say, if all were known, all would be forgiven. It's okay. Let me show you what love looks like. And, uh, you know, and it begins to go. And the king said to this guy, should not you have also forgiven the debts of that guy? There's an interesting thing in this whole thing. Um, I talked last week about righteousness and justice and how we can kind of get that thing screwed up. Righteousness, which literally means to be right with God and others, and it shares the same words in Scripture, original languages, as the word for justice. That justice is literally the equity and the harmony, the balance that comes in this, of being righteous, right with God, right with others. That we take this word righteous to begin to mean my own personal goodness, my own personal purity, not really having to do with other people or maybe even God, or I think it's just me and God, but I don't really include other people in it. But righteous begins to be this weird thing that doesn't even mean righteous, but somehow in our cultural way, we hook at that. So when we hear the phrase in Habakkuk, 
quoted by Paul in Galatians that says, the righteous will walk by faith. How do we begin to take that? This is how, for a couple years of my life, I took it. Me, who's getting it all right, who's better than them, who's getting it all wrong. God must really not love them. I am close to God, and he loves me, and I, the righteous, am walking by faith. Maybe it was just me, and nobody else ever has cast it that way, but that's how I cast it. And it's really funky because that's not at all what it means. What it means is I, who have been made righteous by God, by, by the grace he's given me, am now in this opportunity, this one opportunity to receive grace and give grace. Now here's the crazy thing about giving grace. I said it earlier. When I serve you, in my maturity, when I give to you against what my flesh desires or my selfishness wants, what's the very first question I'm going to ask myself? Well, if I'm doing all this giving and all this serving, who's looking out for me? Right? This is pretty tough work, and I, I seem to be giving a lot. Who's looking out for me? Who's looking out for number one? The righteous will walk by faith. Those who are in a right relationship with God and trying to be in a right relationship with other people have to live by faith. Why? Because I can't see how it's all going to work out well for me. I'm not laboring and fighting to, to meet all my selfish desires. I'm actually giving away, man, the math doesn't work out. How's this going to pan out for me? I don't know, God, what's going on? Do you got me? Do you have me in this? I got you, Ken. I got, you just keep trusting me. I promised I'd be there. I promised I'd walk into the mess with you. I promised I would take care of you. I promised you didn't have to worry about today or tomorrow, that I'm the sovereign God that knows you, that knows what's coming, that knows other people. And I've got you. I'm not going to let you go, especially if you're doing my will. Really? Just show me a little of how this is all going to pan out so I can see it. Can I keep my finger on the chess piece, God? Until you show me a little how this is all going to work out and then I can let go and that's my move? Because, man, this feels like I'm really putting myself out there. Let me just keep my finger on the chess piece, God. Show me how it's going to lead to my greatest happiness and my greatest good. And God says, the righteous will walk by faith, not by sight. Can, man. I'm doing stuff that's not going to come to fruition until 10 years from now. It might not even come to fruition in your lifetime. My ways are so, high, so much higher than your ways. The things you're hungering for now, like I, if I had gotten a tattoo when I was like 15, it would have been a G.I. Joe. I'm really glad I didn't do that, okay? I changed through time. God's like, man, the things, the conversation you're even trying to have with me isn't even the conversation you're going to want to have with me a year. You, my ways are higher than your ways. You got to trust me here. Again, that's what it means to live by faith. You put, your faith in, you put your faith in me and I will show you that I'm faithful. You, you put your trust in me, 
I will prove to you that I'm trustworthy. But in the meantime, the righteous will walk by faith. You want to know what's really interesting? The King James Version and the New King James Version translates that passage as the just will walk by faith. The just will walk by faith. Even Rich Mullins translated it that way when he sang a song in 1984 called The Just Will Walk by Faith. When I really care about the balance, the equity, the unity, that everybody is on the same playing field, that we are all made just and justified. When I care about the right relationship with God and others, it's where faith is. Grace is our opportunity to trust God. Grace is our opportunity to trust God. You forgiving other people, stooping down low, is your opportunity to prove God. I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story. I already told a story. I didn't know that I was going to tell a story, but then I told a story. But since I told it to them, I should tell it to you. But this whole getting high-centered on righteousness and not getting it, it's a really fascinating thing to me. So I was... Uh, T-shirt security. When I became a Christian at Clemson, I was T-shirt security, which, like, I hired all the six-foot-five dudes that were 300 pounds and put them on the stage and back in the locker room and all that stuff for the bands. Just, you know, that whole deal. Um, I wore uh, work boots to make myself feel more like I was 6'5". Uh, <laughs> but it was this interesting thing. I kind of ran this deal. All the concerts were interesting. They were all, like, country concerts at South Carolina. So, like, John Michael Montgomery and Alan Jackson and all this stuff. Then the Gaithers were coming to town. Gaithers were this old-time kind of gospel choir, Christian thing. And all the staff I worked with, the people that had like full-time jobs doing the concerts at Clemson, the events at Clemson, were, were just it was unbelievable. They were like, Ken, this is the worst event we do all year. It's miserable. I'm like, what do you mean it's miserable? These people are miserable. You watch. The people that show up, they're just the worst people in the world to work with. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's an old fuddy-duddy gospel choir. They're like, yeah, whatever. You'll see. So sure enough, the Gaither thing comes, and it's church buses and church vans and all the church people, and they unload and they come in. And you wouldn't believe the level of white middle-class entitlement that was in that room in, in all that one evening. If you cut somebody off, if you stepped on something, if you looked at the way people acted in the halls, if someone didn't get their seat, if their seat wasn't a certain way, it was unbelievable the level of entitlement. And so these people, it's like, you're with, this is, these, these are the Christians. They're singing about grace all night. They're singing about grace. There's no grace in their life. They're like choking my staff. You're not giving me what I want, what I deserve. I paid my money. It's like, you just got done singing about grace. And it blew me away. I was, I was about a year into being a Christian. And so when I, I had just come off an experience the last year that I wasn't a Christian of uh, going to a Grateful Dead concert. Now, if you don't know anything about music, the Grateful Dead is not a heavy metal band. 
It's actually super chill, stoner music, okay? So I'd gone to a couple Grateful Dead concerts before Jerry Garcia died, and I was, you know, and at concerts like that, there's something, if you've gone, you kind of know, um, people who drink too much or, or do too many drugs overdose a bit and end up needing medical attention. I found myself in that spot. I was with a group of my friends, first song, Grateful Dead concert, and uh, it was scary. It was really scary. I thought I was going to die. My friends wouldn't help me because it was the first song, the first set. And they were just like, what are you talking about? Like, it, so I stumbled my way out, and I was a real mess, and this hippie girl finds me, takes me over. There's a group of about 20 of them takes me over, and they give me water, take care of me for about two and a half hours until I'm, it's not as scary anymore, and I'm, I'm back to normal. It's a group of, uh, they're, they're a group of friends, and the 20 of them were selling encyclopedias all summer long, wherever the Grateful Dead went. So Grateful Dead would go to Atlanta, they go to Atlanta, they sell encyclopedias. Grateful Dead goes here, they go there, they sell encyclopedias. So this is what they're doing with their summer. But I spent this chunk of time with that group of people and saw some of the most unbelievable grace and solidarity and kind of fraternal vibe going on that I'd, I'd never witnessed before. You know, and my buddies, I didn't even know where my buddies were. I, you know, we spent an hour looking for each other at the end of the concert, right? So here comes the Gaither concert. I go to the Gaither concert, I see this, and I walk away, and here's what I've never forgotten in my gut. Jesus said, they, they, the people that don't know me, they, will know that you are my followers, my, my children, my people, by your love for one another, your grace, okay? These people are going to know that you're graced because they're going to see such a change because grace begets grace. They're going to know that you're mine by your love, by your grace for each other. So I come out of the Gaither thing, and I'm like, I don't think these Christian people get it. (laughs) It's not just that we need to be a little bit more loving from where we're at. Here's my hippie friends. Like, we have so far to even get to where they're at. Like, Gaither crowd, I don't want the Gaithers to see it and put a slander lawsuit on me. So, the Gaither crowd, a notch up, a notch up, a notch up. We have so far to get to even, I mean, you might be like living in Bend and you're like, man, I got some friends that, they're a rough crowd, but they have such grace for each other. We have so far to even get to get to this level, let alone to surpass it and get to this level to where these people are looking and going, man, those people are crazy. What's got into them? That's just, that's just crazy. They don't even miss a beat. Someone offends them, steps on their toes, does something wrong, they go up and go, you know what? I could have had my toe out there bigger for you. I'm sorry. They, they just take everything and fix the fight. 
They got no pride in the game. They just, they got nothing going that way. They're just in there and they're realizing grace begets grace. And if we've been forgiven, we should forgive. And we love because he first loved us, which means we forgive because he forgave us. And somehow there's something going on here. And, and we, we, <laughs> if we're doing this personal purity thing, we're just not even caring about God and others. And there's nothing going on that way. We're just, we're not even getting started So Jesus tells this whole parable and says, man, you be patient, Peter, 70 times 7. You dole it out the way I gave it to you, man. You make it work. You get your hippie on. You love some people. You do it. So here's the question on this one. Number two, life long struggles. I remember being in Holland in a ser- uh, church service and this lady freaked out in, ju- in Dutch. It's an older woman and she just in the middle of the service just freaked out in Dutch. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? Like church in Holland is so much more fun than church in America. It's like drama. And afterwards I, I found out the pastor was preaching forgiveness and he said, you need to forgive the Nazis. And the woman freaked out. She'd lost her whole family in the Holocaust. And she flipped out, said, in Dutch, hell no, I won't forgive the Nazis for what they did. We all have the hell no, don't we? There might be a, somebody who's dead, a grandpa, a father, that man that you don't even know the name of, something that wounded you so deep, set you back so far that you look at other people and you think they're normal and their life is so good. My life can never be normal because of this wound, what this person did to me. And it it marks you and it mars you and it's a part of your identity and it is so hard. It is a lifelong struggle. And you don't think God can do anything with you because you're so messy And it begins at this point realizing that, you know what? God doesn't give up on people. He never gives up. He's not going to give up on you. He didn't give up on me. He talked to to Paul on the road to Damascus in in Acts 26. Paul's talking about it. He's like, man, Jesus got a hold of me, and he's telling me what's what. And he says, you're going to testify to what you've seen and what I'm going to reveal to you. God redeems the mess. He never wastes a hurt. Your mess Your abuse, your pain is something that God can redeem. Moses goes and he screws up his whole calling and he he weighs 40 years in the desert feeling sorry for himself as a shepherd. And God comes along and he's like, man, you don't understand. I've been using this time. Not only did I want you to redeem the people of Israel, but after you got them out of there, I needed you to lead them. So I've been teaching you what a shepherd is all about and giving you humility. And God never gives up on a person, so you feel like you're the biggest lump of clay. Well, any artist will tell you that's the greatest moment of potential, right? When it's fresh and messy and ready to be started. And so one of the things we might need to walk away from here is you might need to forgive yourself, accept God's grace for that thing that you don't feel is pardonable. Guess what? That's the whole point of grace. It's awkward. kind of 
it's so undeserved that it's awkward, but that's grace. And you begin to just go, man, God, you got to help me take this because it's just awkward. I don't deserve it. But you take it and you let God forgive you and you experience forgiveness so that you can be released and he can begin to work with you and mold you and draw those gifts out and then then begin to give you a calling. You're going to testify to the things you've seen, your past, and the things he's going to reveal to you, what he's going to do with you from here forward. And so some of you need to forgive yourself or you need to forgive that person that's unforgivable so that you can be done with it set free from it and release yourself so there's the day-to-day stuff but man the things that that kind of sometimes get us high centered are the lifelong things losing your whole family in the holocaust but somehow you've got to turn that over and let god begin to redeem that so the question on this one the question for the first one is how do you erase the fight are you willing to erase the fight here's the question on this one And I don't see it. Imagine that. I think the question is, who owes you a greater debt than you're willing or able to forgive in your own power? Who owes you a greater debt than you're willing or desirous or able to forgive in your own power? God never gives up on people. It's been said uh, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that that prisoner was you. It's been said that to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that that prisoner was you. What is the lifelong thing that you're holding on to? And can you surrender it to grace? A broken world includes messed up people. Messed up people do messed up things. God's grace makes us just. God's grace forgives debts. And grace restores relationship for the undeserving. It's about reconciliation and unity. We forgive because he forgave us. We love because he loved us. I'm going to read you as the closing prayer just a chunk out of 1 John here, 1 John chapter 4. Let me just, why don't you close your eyes and let me just read this by way of closing. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And so the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Amen.